this morning, uh, we're going to be kicking off uh, a series that really will run through the end of the year, and it's going to be through the book of Joshua. Uh, this is exciting for a number of reasons, which I'll explain a little later, but uh, just from the, the beginning, um, this is kind of the, the normal pattern for us, uh, for us to walk through books of the Bible, uh, to kind of bounce back and forth between a New Testament book and an Old Testament book. Uh, we'll talk uh, about this here in just a bit, but uh, both are vitally important to our lives as Christians, uh, and both have a lot to say about our everyday lives as Christians. And so uh, my goal this morning specifically is really twofold. Uh, first, I would hope to give you kind of an overview of the book of Joshua as a whole, uh, from kind of a 30,000 foot, foot view, so to speak. Uh, just to kind of whet our appetite for the rest of the series and hopefully give us a little bit of context for where we are in the overall story of Scripture uh, in the book of Joshua. So, so that's kind of the first goal is to give us the overview. And then second, we're actually going to jump in this morning and get our feet wet with, with looking at Joshua 1, 1 through 9. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them to the table of contents. Uh, yes, you heard me right, table of contents. Uh, Bibles do have a, a table of contents, which can be really helpful in, in knowing where a certain book is placed, kind of in the overall storyline. So uh, even if you've been reading your Bible for years, I want you to open it to the table of contents. So this is helpful for us to see where a book is in the storyline. Uh, or if you're new to reading the Bible, just to know what page uh, the book of Joshua starts on. Uh, so as you're looking at where Joshua sits... Uh, in the overall storyline of Scripture, uh, Francis Schaeffer has, I think, correctly called Joshua a bridge book. Uh, and what he means by that is that it's a helpful transition from one point in the overall story of the Bible to another. Uh, this would be similar to how we would see the book of Acts, uh, which moves us from the Gospels and the life of Christ through to the rest of the New Testament or the church age. Uh, Joshua is somewhat the same. So if you look in your table of contents, uh, you'll notice that, that Joshua comes right after the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, which is known as the Law of Moses or, or the Torah or, or the Pentateuch, meaning the, the first five books. So chronologically, Joshua follows, follows almost seamlessly uh, out of the book of Deuteronomy, where uh, Moses dies and leadership is passed to, you guessed it, Joshua. Uh, as for authorship, uh, the book probably is not authored by Joshua himself, but it, it covers many eyewitness accounts of the events of Joshua's life as kind of a part of the story of the history of Israel. Uh, in fact, spoiler alert, uh, the book ends with an eyewitness account of Joshua's death and burial. So we know Joshua probably wasn't writing that uh, account, at least. Uh, we're going to find out later that Joshua... As a part, uh, or as a bridge book, moves us kind of out of the desert and into the promised land uh, as a part of God's story of redemption. Uh, for those of you who, who may be unfamiliar, land specifically is a very important topic in the Old Testament and one that uh, we'll hopefully explore as we, we walk through this study in this series. In Genesis 17, 7 through 11, God made a promise to Abraham. Uh, we read 
uh, Genesis 12, 1 through 9 earlier, but this is another promise of God kind of reiterating the same thing. And it says this, Genesis 17, 7 through 11, God says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring uh, after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So uh, the book of Joshua uh, shows us how that promise, at least initially, is fulfilled. So just like Moses crossed the Red Sea, uh, we're going to see Joshua crossing the Jordan River in chapters 3 and 4. Uh, both instances with God stopping the flow of water miraculously. Uh, the, the author is trying to get us to see through these historic events uh, that God is being faithful to his promises. That, that what God did in Moses, he's doing again in Joshua. Just like uh, Abraham had all of the males circumcised, Joshua is going to have all of the males circumcised as they reinstate the Passover feast prior to entering the land in chapter 5. Uh, the promises made to Abraham and to Moses are happening in the book of Joshua. Uh, but it's more than just that. Uh, you, you see in your table of contents how the book of Joshua uh, kind of sits as a historical book uh, right at the end of the first five books, which are, are all narrative sections of Scripture. Well, in Jewish tradition, though, uh, the book of Joshua is actually put in a different order. It's classified differently. And it's not classified as a historic book in the Jewish tradition, but instead as a former prophet. And I want to suggest that this is probably a better classification of it. Uh, while Joshua is, no doubt, uh, a historical book, it's going to answer all of the what questions, right? Uh, it's going to tell us who fought, what battles, and who won. It's history. But it's also prophetic in nature. Well, what do I mean by that? I mean uh, that when we're reading the book of Joshua, we should see, see the book more like a sermon than a world history book. Uh, one author has said this. He says, the prophecy of Joshua means to convict, not merely to inform, to comfort, not simply, not simply to enlighten. The book of Joshua is preaching material beamed to Israel in the form of a historical narrative. And I think that's right. So uh, as we move through the book of Joshua over the next couple of months, uh, I want to encourage you to keep asking this question. Uh, what is the writer preaching about when he tells me this story? What is the writer or the author preaching about when he tells me this story. So uh, we want to know what happened, uh, but we also want to know why these things happened. Uh, what's the meaning behind it? Further, uh, I want to remind us what Paul says in the New Testament in 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, Paul says, 
But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I want to remind us this morning that the sacred writings and the all scripture that Paul speaks of here includes the Old Testament, which includes the book of Joshua. Friends, the book of Joshua is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. In fact, the word of God and obedience to it are key themes throughout the book of Joshua. Everyone with me there? So, uh, but before jumping into to chapter 1, I want to quickly give us kind of the lay of the land in Joshua so that we can know where we're headed. Uh, Joshua, as a book, is broken up into two major parts. Uh, the, the first half of the book, uh, Joshua chapters 1 through 12, is really an account of the Israelites conquering the land and destroying their enemies. So again, what happened? The Israelites took the land. What's the next question we should be asking? Why, Why right? Uh, because God was with them. And he was faithfully fulfilling his promises as they were obedient to his word. Uh, again and again and again, uh, the book of Joshua is going to show God to be in control of all the events in history. Not only in dramatic miracles, but also in the consistent way that he's given credit for all of Israel's victories. So the Lord fights for Israel and sustains them. Uh, we see this in several places, including Joshua 5.14, uh, where the commander of the army of the Lord is sent to Joshua. Uh, that's an amazing story. I can't wait for us to get, get there in the book. Uh, Joshua 10.12, the Lord it says, gives the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. He makes the sun stand still while Israel wins the battle. It's clearly God who's doing these things and giving Israel the victory. Chapter 10.42 and chapter 23.3, it says explicitly that the Lord God fought for Israel. So uh, God stops the Jordan River. He, he makes the walls fall in Jericho. He rains hailstorms on Israel's enemies, and he even makes the sun stand still. Uh, these are things that man cannot be credited with. So God is acting on Israel's behalf very clearly. Uh, there's going to be numer numerous characters on the stage in the book of Joshua, but the, the thing that I want us to know is that God is always at the center uh, as the primary actor on the stage. So pay close attention to this, this theme throughout the book of Joshua. Uh, the author goes to great lengths to help us see that, that God is this in the center and he's in control of all things. So uh, that's kind of chapters 1 through 12. Uh, Israel going into the land, taking possession of it. The second half of the book of Joshua, chapters 13 through 24, which will actually move through a lot quicker, uh, they describe the process of kind of dividing up that land that was conquered uh, between the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, although it would be easy for us to see these events as some kind of 
far off removed history uh, that, that might not really re- uh, apply to us, I, I want to suggest this morning something otherwise. Uh, you heard me say earlier that this book chronicles the life of Joshua, but uh, this isn't meant to be a character study on Joshua. It's a book, first and foremost, about God. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, we often see characters who, uh, flawed as they are, represent Jesus. In other words, they're types of Christ who would come after them. Uh, for example, Moses is a type of Christ who leads the people of God out of slavery in Egypt, just like Christ would lead his people out of slavery, uh, of sin and death. Moses, uh, his life as a type of Christ, is meant to point people towards what Christ is going to be like. Similarly, Joshua's life points us to Christ and kind of foreshadows what God's doing in us today as he brings his people into his place under his rule. Uh, That's a good working definition of the kingdom of God. God's people in God's place under his rule. And so I want us to pay attention to that uh, throughout this book. Joshua, uh, he was the captain of God's people, leading them into the land to defeat the enemy and fulfill God's promises. Uh, We know that as Christians, our captain is not Joshua, but Christ, who doesn't conquer a land, but sin and death on our behalf. Uh, These are the types of connections we need to be seeing as we walk through the book of Joshua together uh, over the next couple of months. Uh, This is a book about Joshua and Israel, but more importantly, it's a book about God. One last thing I want to point to before we actually dive into the text is these strange piles of rocks or stones that we're going to see throughout the book. Uh, We're going to be seeing these piles of stones in chapter 4, 7, 8, 10, and 24. Uh, Each time we see them, they mean something specific to the people of Israel. So each of these piles is a reminder to God's people of a time when God acted mercifully and gracious toward them. Uh, They're a reminder that God offers forgiveness and redemption to those who repent. Uh, Even the pile of stones that's going to be on this character named Achan, uh, who was stoned for his disobedience uh, to the Lord's commands. Uh, Even that is a reminder of God's holiness, which is a gracious act. Uh, Even amidst the people's sin, God perseveres with his people. Uh, He could have wiped out all of Israel because of that one man's sin, polluting the whole camp. But God was merciful to them. Uh, In essence, these stones are kind of a a memorial to remind them of what God has done for them and what God continues to do. As a church, uh, we don't often pile up stones to, to remember things. Instead of piling up stones, as a church, we regularly practice the Lord's Supper together. Uh, it's a continual reminder to us, as the people of God, uh, of what the Lord has done in acting mercifully and gracious to us. Uh, so, so when you see these stones in the book of Joshua, think about that. That's what, what, what they're doing. They're, they're putting these memorial things together so that they remember what God had done for them. So with all of that said, uh, we're going to jump into the text in chapter 1 for the remaining time we have. Joshua 1, 1 through 9. 
Joshua 1, 1 through 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Uh, as I noted before, we begin uh, this book with the funeral and kind of the passing of the torch from Moses to Joshua. Uh, the Lord then gives Joshua a command which is based on a promise. Uh, in verse 2, God says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise and go over this Jordan, you and all the people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. So God commands Joshua to go into the land, which, by the way, he's giving the people of Israel as a gift. So right off the bat, uh, there are some amazing promises that God gives to Joshua. Again, these promises were made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis, and then confirmed to Moses in Deuteronomy 1.8 and Deuteronomy 11.24. The people of Israel eagerly anticipated the possession of this land, and God here in Joshua is about to make good on his promise. But you can imagine kind of the despair that must have been present at the death of Moses, right? The greatest leader Israel has ever had the one with whom God spoke, the one who received the law on behalf of Israel. God's servant is dead. And a raging river lies in between the people of Israel and the promised land. Yet, there's hope in the promise of this gift which God's preparing for them. Should should they wait? Should they weep? No. God tells them to arise and go. Moses is dead, but God's promise isn't. From the beginning of this book, God wants us to see that his faithfulness to his people doesn't hinge on Moses or upon any man for that matter. 
however gifted they might be. There's this continual tension between God's promise and man's responsibility here. God's promise will come to pass, but Joshua is told to go in obedience. Joshua knows that that God's going to be faithful to his promise, but he still has the responsibility to obey God's commands, to go and take the land. Remember what I said earlier. God is the main character in the book of Joshua and in all of Scripture. And look at what the main character promises in these first verses. He promises the gift of land in verses 2 through 4. He gives the promise of victory in verse 5. And most importantly, he gives the promise of his presence in verse 5 and then again in verse 9. The Lord of the universe promises that he will be with Joshua. And that's why he can have confidence and hope in going forward. Interestingly enough, these same words were spoken, not to Joshua, but to Moses in Exodus 3 verse 12. Exodus 3 12. Uh, Moses is about to face Israel and Pharaoh. Look what, what God says to him. He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. I will be with you, God says to Moses. God speaks the same assurance here to Joshua. Look at verse 9. God says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For, just given the reason for that, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go, Joshua. God tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened. Don't be dismayed. Is it because Joshua is just a great military man with the greatest army and the biggest strategy? No. Is it because Joshua is just supposed to kind of man up and and rely on his own strength? No. Is it because God wants a leader who just thinks positive thoughts? Just go and be strong and courageous, Joshua. Think positive thoughts. No. Joshua can have confidence because the Lord is with him wherever he goes. Any river that's crossed any walls that fall, any battles that are won or lost are because of the hand of the Lord. We're going to see this assurance of the Lord's presence throughout the entire book of Joshua. We're going to see it in chapters 2, 3, 4, 6, 10, 13, 14, 21, and 23. Do you think that's a main theme? Yeah, it's all over the place. God is with Joshua. That's why you can have confidence. Okay, so this is all good and well for Joshua. He's, he's a special character. He's the new leader of Israel. God is with him and won't forsake him. But what about us? What about the everyday Christian like you and like me? I want to call our attention to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 through 6. Uh, No need to flip there, but you can kind of follow along with me here on the screen. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6 says this, Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, 
I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So the same promise that God makes to Joshua right here in chapter 1 is applied in Hebrews to all of us as Christians. So Christian, amidst your changing circumstances, take hold of the promises that God will neither leave you nor forsake you. Because of these promises, you can echo King David who said in Psalm 23, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. God is faithful, friends. For those who have repented and believed in Christ for salvation, you may go through some difficult times. You may experience times of intense suffering. But the Lord will never leave you or forsake you. He loves you. He will be with you. I want you to imagine what your life would look like if you truly believed and trusted that truth this morning. Imagine a church full of people who believed in and trusted in that truth. That, my friends, is what God's calling us to do. These are, are, are certainly facts about what God said to Joshua. But they're truths about God himself, which are no less true for us today in Santa Cruz County, as a new church in a hard area. God will never leave you or forsake you. Uh, the second truth that I want us to see here in this section and in the book as a whole is that there's a call for obedience to God's word, which is central to everything. Uh, look with me at verses 7 through 8. Joshua 1, 7 through 8. It says, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. And then in verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So God commands Joshua to obey his written word, not turning from it to the right or to the left. And then he says the result is success wherever he goes. So is the Lord, just ask this question, is the Lord promising us financial success or ease of life here? Not necessarily. But he does know the best possible way to live life here on this earth. And he's given us clear direction on how to live that life in his written word. A life lived according to God's word is a successful life. Hear that loud and clear. A life lived according to God's word is a successful life. That's what God's promising Joshua and promising us. It doesn't matter what the world throws at you. When you obey God's word, that's success. Further, we see in verse 8 this call to consistently speak the word of God and to meditate on it. And what does God say is the result? 
Verse 8, again, the book of the, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. So we're supposed to be speaking it. But you shall meditate on it day and night so that, so here's the result, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. So uh, when we constantly speak the word of God and meditate on it, we're meant to be led to obedience. A, a lack of study or a lack of meditation leads to a lack of obedience. Uh, we're going to see this stressed again in chapter 22, verse 5, where, where Josh, it says, Only be very, very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Again, Joshua 23, verse 6, Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. So many uh, people today, uh, some well-meaning Christians, they say things like, I, I don't want to be legalistic about reading my Bible. I just need to love people well. Maybe you, you've heard someone say that. I just want to say, you learn to love people well through reading your Bibles. Uh, the Word of God sets the standard of what love is, even. But, or you, you might have heard people say, it's not about rules or, or religion, it's about relationship. Friends, you learn how to have a relationship through meditating on the Scriptures. Now, I understand what they're getting at when they say, you know, not about rules and relation or, or rules and, and religion. It's about relationship. That's that's actually a helpful corrective to legalism. But uh, I want to say that uh, that's a false dichotomy. Uh, just to kind of separate those two things, they go together. Actually, meditating on God's rules, meditating on, on God's laws, that's how we have relationship. Or, or how about this one? You've heard people say, uh, "All I need is the Spirit living in me." I don't need to study the Word of God. The Spirit's just going to direct me. I've heard that before. Christian, you'll know if you're hearing from the Spirit when what you're hearing sounds an awful lot like the Scriptures. The Spirit is the one who inspired the Scriptures. Now, I'm not saying that, that mere Bible study is obedience. Hear that loud and clear. I'm not saying that mere Bible study is obedience, but... Obedience typically doesn't happen without first knowing the word of God. I think of Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This is how we please God. We absorb his word and we obey it. That's central to Joshua 1, 1 through 9, and the entire book of Joshua. And it's my hope this morning that we'll kind of catch that vision and that it'll ignite a passion in us, one, to know God's word, but right on the heels of that, to obediently follow him, all the while knowing that he's with us and that he will never leave us or forsake us. Now, most of this sermon has been directed at Christians in this room. 
But uh, I want to finish by, by speaking to anyone here who maybe isn't a Christian. Uh, first, even though studying an ancient book like this each Sunday to try to apply it to our lives, uh, that might seem odd to you at this point. Uh, we want you to know, even if that seems odd, we're glad you're here, even if it doesn't make sense yet. Further, particularly as we walk through this book as a, a whole, I just want to acknowledge up front, you're probably going to have some questions about what it means for God to command and even cause whole cities to be wiped out. How can God be a God of love and command such things? That's a question that always comes up in the book of Joshua. And I just want to say that's a valid question. And we want you to know that this is the right place to ask those kind of a question, kinds of questions. We believe that the scripture has clear answers to those types of questions and more. But for this very moment, we want you to know that God is a God of love and justice. It's a God of love and justice. We're going to see that throughout the book of Joshua. But as Christians, we see that most, most centrally, most clearly displayed in the person of Christ. Every single one of us have sinned and rebelled against the king of the universe, God himself. Each one of us deserves the just penalty for this cosmic act of treason. And that just penalty that we deserve is death. God can't merely just look the other way and maintain his justice. He is a God of justice. But he's also a God of love. He sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to die in our place as our substitute. He died and bore the full wrath of God that each of us deserved for those who would repent and believe. He was buried and rose from the grave three days later, conquering sin, fulfilling God's promises most fully, giving us a more sure land than that which Joshua inherited. Through his death, burial, and resurrection, he gives us eternal life. We want you to know that you too can cling to this promise this very moment. You can have Christ as your Lord and Savior by turning from sin and trusting in Jesus as your only hope. We invite you to do that today knowing that God's promises never fail. That's the, the story of the book of Joshua. If you have questions about what that turning to God looks like, we'd love to talk with you. But we want everyone to see that this morning. That even through an old, dusty book in the Old Testament like Joshua, that we're meant to, to be excited about and to be encouraged about God's promises and how he began to answer them and how answering those points to Jesus himself. And so that's my hope for this morning and my hope for us as we walk through the rest of the book together. Let's pray.